Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. This week, after Joe Guan Yu's terrifying British Grand Prix accident, we ask, what can F1 learn about car and barrier safety? Plus, we look to the future with Pat Simmons, who gives us the ultimate guide to what the teams will be putting in their cars in 2026. Synthetic, sustainable fuel. Welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. As always, we're joined by Gary Anderson, who has vast experience as an F1 technical director and who has worked for some of the most famous teams, drivers and engineers in F1 history. How's life, Gary? Life's good, yeah. Yeah, sun's shining, so I can't complain, really. Um, enjoyed the last, uh, what was it, 10 laps of the, the British Grand Prix. That was what I spent. Those I would call real racing, you know, a bit of argy-bargy, nothing too dramatic, a bit of respect between the drivers. Um, but, you know, in, in reality, that's what racing should be. And, um, you know, the more we see of that, the better it will be. And, and I think, actually, the more we see of that, the more respect the drivers will get for each other as well. You know, it's not just as shut the door once and you're not coming at me again. You know, that was an, a typical set of laps where, you know, it didn't matter what corner you are in, somebody was going to have a go at it. So um, more of it, please. Yeah, we can but hope. Well, as always, we'll start with a technical topic that's caught your eye this week, Gary. I suspect, given what happened at Silverstone, it'll be what happened at the other end of the, the British Grand Prix that, that you might pick to talk about. Yeah, I mean, the accident at the beginning obviously was fairly dramatic. Um, visually, it was um, it was quite an incredible shunt, to be honest. But as I say many times about accidents, the longer they are, the, the better they are, because at the end of the day, you know, it's the stopping that hurts. Where the car ended up down in between the, the crash barrier and the fences um, does show, I think, that you know there is a, a little bit of, of room there for a, a bit of a change. I suppose what we should say is there shouldn't be a gap down there and those fence poles should be part of the structure that holds the, the armco up. So, But, that, you know, again, a lot of these things are hindsight. You know, nobody would have expected the incident to happen in the way it did and the way the car flicked up right at the last minute. And again, that it seemed to flick up because the gravel was running out, and there was a there was a bit of probably tarmac or something there, concrete where the tires and the and the armcos put into. So, you know, again, that's that's the problem, isn't it? You you don't see these things. It's you have the the distance of safety x amount of meters from the from the track, depending upon the speed of the corner. But um, again, you know, starting at the beginning of the incident, you know, it it was just a. Everybody's saying it was George Russell's fault or it was Pierre Gasly's fault or it was somebody's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. It's racing. And open-wheel racing is dangerous. If you touch wheels, you're going to have a problem of some sort. We've seen it many, many times. Um, but that was probably right at the end of the scale where it could get nasty. Um, but off the start there, obviously, George Russell with the hard tyres on, he has a bit less grip, you know, and it caught him out. And you're trying to recover. And I don't think he did anything wrong. He's a racing driver, and the, the the objective of the start is to to get on with it as best possible. You know, you could say the same about Sebastian Vettel hitting the back of 
um, of Albon, it you know, it's racing. He's trying to make up as many positions as possible. Albon saw the accident going on, and the, and the car in front of him slowed down as well. Bottas, I think it was. So suddenly, you know, there's a there's a queue there, and the guy coming at the back, you know, he's he's last to find out about it. So incidents like that, when you've got twenty cars all around in one one group at a standing start, will always have a bit of a risk level. And I'm surprised we've got this far um, without having something more dramatic happen. But um, it's it's after the accident happens and the consequences of that. You know, obviously the car barrel rolled, got sideways, barrel rolled. And um, it seemed to rotate because there's one picture when he's going over and the, um, the front of the car is heading towards the, the pit wall. And then the next picture when he's landed, I've seen the, the, it's the back of the car. So the car not only bar rolled midair, but it also sort of rotated because of the inertia. So, I, you know, the, the rollover bar itself got a, a pretty strange knock. Um, the load test, it's a compound load test of a lateral force, a, a fore and aft force and a, and a vertical force. And they compound that up to to end up. I think it's about twelve and a half ton that the, the top of the roll bar has to uh, be able to absorb with the maximum of a fifty mil deflection. And these are all sort of from memory, really. Um, so it's you know, twelve and a half tons, no 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 light thing. But the, you know the cars have gone up. The car was at its heaviest at that point in time. It was nine hundred kilograms. So um, you're talking you know fourteen fifteen times the weight of the car. That, it, that the, road te- the load test has to absorb. Um, so the inertia of the car landing from that height wouldn't have generated that. So the first thing you need to look at, I think, is the is the roll bar uh, safety test and the direction of that load. Because because of having the halo on there now, the front roll bar is quite a lot higher. So whatever loads the rear roll bar sees will be actually in a slightly different direction from in the past. So um, that probably is a little bit of a look at. And do the loads need increased? Well, if you're going to revise the loads as far as the direction of the load is concerned, then, yeah, it probably needs to be looked at. But the single spike sort of rollover bar that uh, that Sauber use, as opposed to a, what we might call a more pyramid solution on the rest of the car with four legs and they all meet up at the top, um, lateral stability of it is not, you know, it, it cannot be as good. Um, the lateral load that's in the, put in the roll bar is the, is the least of the loads that the roll bar sees in the tests. As I say, it's all compounded up, but the, the, the direction of the of the force, the lateral force is the least. And obviously with the car barrel rolling and turning around as well, it would have got a, a very large lateral impact on the top of the rollover bar. And as I say, that, you know, that, and I'm assuming this, I haven't seen the car, I've just seen the pictures. I'm assuming that's what wiped the roll bar off. Uh, because laterally it's it's least stiffest. It's got a narrow base where it sits on the top of the monocoque. Um, and then afterwards, obviously, it's just a passenger. You're, you've got a bit of carbon fibre up the top there. You've probably got the roll bar trapped in there somehow, which will be a titanium machining. Nearly everybody has a, a roll bar as a titanium machining embedded in, a, in some sort of carbon cover. Um, and obviously, we saw lots of sparks from the from the halo and from the rollover bar area. So I think the rollover bar was sort of in there somewhere. Um, but it was, you know, getting uh, getting wiped, get, got wiped away, so it had no structure left on it. So I think Zoo's very lucky. He's small. He could get his head down a bit. I haven't seen his helmet as to whether or not it actually did touch the ground or anything, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. But then, as I say, that, that that's all okay. The car stayed upside down because the rollover bar sort of ended up not allowing the car to be a triangular shape at the top because it, uh, it collapsed. 
So basically it was quite wide at the top, so it doesn't want to turn over again. And normally we get the triangular effect at the top of the car with a rollover bar, and then one set one side of the car, the tires will dig into the ground and flip it back again. It may cause more of a barrel roll, but it will flip it back up, you know, a few times. Um, but to end up then, as I say, catching that, that little tarmac and end up down that gap, I would hate to have thought what would happen if there'd been a fire. So there's lots and lots of things to look at there. Um, all all new experiences, I suppose, for everybody, FIA, the teams, the whole bit. But there's a lot of new experiences there and it needs to be looked at. You can't you can't just brush it under the carpet. You know, it's, it's It can come again, so it has to be looked at and that's the starting from the start line. You know, we don't want to do away with, with, um, with standing starts because that's one way to stop that happening, just have a rolling start, have them all in line. Um, so it's it's one of those sort of situations where I think you need to, you need to start from when the incident started to happen. Um, we don't want to cover wheels and make it a, a, not an open wheel formula, but you have to protect then the, the situations that can arise, and that starts from doing the rollover bar investigation and the uh, the safety investigation of the, the crash barrier and the gap to the to the debris fencing. I mean, the debris fencing is there to protect the, the public from wheels, bits of car, whatever going through into it. And it does a very good job for that. It's not a catch fence by any means. There are some sort of inch wires through it about every, I don't know, 40 centimetres or, or 50 centimetres apart. So they will catch a car if it goes up there um, and they will cut the car in two. If you remember back when uh, Rubens Barrichello crashed in, in Imola, in the Jordan with me, um, you know, the car went over the top of the barrier, like exactly the same, over the top of the tyres, on top of the barrier, hit that fence, and it actually nearly cut the bottom out of the car, one of those cables. But it did stop the car going into the crowd. Um, if that hadn't been there, I think at Emla in 94, it's a long time ago, you know, Rubens could have ended up on the grandstand there. But it shows you, when you launch a car um, like his, his, his car stayed upright, but when you launch it, it stayed upright initially, but when you launch it, it just went over the top of the tyres, over the top of the crash bar and into the same debris fence. Then when it touched down, it barrel rolled um, forward. So um, accidents happen. They've been happening for a long time. They will continue to happen. But I think from every accident, both from the team's point of view, from the FIA point of view, you've got to learn something and you've got to react to it. And you've got to react to it fairly quickly. Yeah, and certainly the FIA are very good now at any major accident. They'll take a very, very close look at, gather all sorts of data. It'll go into their big accident database. So I'm sure that works ongoing. Now, obviously, one thing that people talked about with this was that it was another win for the halo. Obviously, it's very, very easy whenever there's an accident on a car that involves a halo to say, oh, it saved him. In this case, this, in fact, we saw two cases at Silverstone, if you count the F2 crash as well, where there's a reasonably high probability that the halo stopped a potentially pretty horrendous outcome. Yeah, the, the Formula 2 accident was probably just a little bit more Halo-ish than the other one because that was just a car that, that launched itself off of those very stupid sausage curves which have got to be done away with. You know, that's the first thing the FIA have got to do is is eliminate those. You don't need them now and you, you just have to make sure that you have a regulation for track limits. So get rid of those, those and, and it should be done for this next race in Austria. You know, a lot of circuits have them bolted down they're not actually sort of part of the track surface. And even if they were, they can come up. But, you know, if we go, if the teams go to Austria and those, those sausage curbs are still in place, where they are in a lot of corners, then I think, you know, they should down tools and say, no, we aren't playing here anymore until this is, this is fixed. Because they are just dangerous. So, again, the F2 race, you know, a car was launched and it landed on top of the other car. Um, and the halo definitely saved the driver because if the halo hadn't been there, it would have been just a simple case of one car landing on top of another driver's head. 
Um, in in uh, Zhou's case, you know, same thing. Obviously, the, because the rollover bar failed, the halo was there to keep the car up, um, as it was in, in Roman Grosjean accident a couple of years ago. You know, his was there to stop the barrier from for sure taking his head off. So we've had quite a lot of incidents where the halo has stood up as being a very important part of driver safety and driver driver's life safety. But I, I think it's 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 not just one thing. It's all of the you know the work the FIA done has has got to be has got to be they got to have a pat on the back for that because they've done a lot of work lately. They get a lot of abuse for the car being heavy, but in reality some of that is the safety features. Um, so it's all of a package. Everything has to work together, and the halo has stood out in these last couple of accidents as being a pretty port, important part of the jigsaw. Yeah, it's like any safety measure, isn't it? They're fairly boring until they're actually needed, at which point they're massively beneficial. And yeah, whenever there's an accident like this, people say drivers are lucky, but usually it's down to a lot of work over a very long time by a lot of people that means you get the uh, the positive outcome. So yeah, good to see Joe Guan Yu got out of that one intact. Well, let's move on to our main topic now, which is F1's plan for sustainable synthetic fuels. In 2026, F1 will move to such fuels as part of their new power unit regulations that are currently being signed off. We should have final, final version of those regulations fairly soon. But Gary, obviously you're not a fuel specialist, but you've had enormous amounts of experience of using it in motorsport. So what do you make of F1's initiative in general and this this big move on fuels? Um, I think it's a good thing. The the problem is, from my point of view, I think it's still a bit of a minefield as to um, what synthetic fuel really is. And you know, if we classify it as green fuel, it's it's a lot more than than just simply making a fuel from something that doesn't come out of the ground. It's about how you make it, how you achieve it, how you ship it around the world. And it's a bit like batteries. You know, batteries, green power, oh, fantastic. What happens to them whenever they, they die? You know, where, where do they go to? Where's their, the big the big home for batteries in the sky somewhere? Because, it, you know, that has to be all sorted out. That's the whole package. Um, and I think, you know, manufacturing the fuel has to be green as well. So it's no point in just jumping in because you use this word synthetic fuels. Um, it has to be done correctly. And I think, the, you know, the, the, the car propulsion systems at the moment between, as I say, synthetic fuels, um, batteries, um, all other sorts of powers, you know, it's a minefield. Nobody really knows which way to go and nobody really knows which way they can go. Um, so I think we have to give it time. I don't think we can just put the, the uh, get the F1 group and put their arm up their back and say we've got to use synthetic fuels because it would be very easy to get a huge amount of abuse later on because you've just you just joined the bandwagon and used the name as opposed to actually really doing something. And if you were in the position of being a technical director and you knew this was coming, obviously teams work with their fuel suppliers quite closely, what sort of conversations would you be having? Because you can't just completely leave them to get on with it. You need to talk about characteristics and that kind of thing. So how would that process work? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the fuel companies know what they're trying to achieve and what you've got to do is is agree to achieving that and you know if you make a you know very high density uh, fuel where um you don't need as much in the car you don't need as big a fuel tank or bigger volume uh, lots and lots of directions you can go in different ways that the technical director will probably get involved with but i think it has to be taken away from that i mean the fuel the fuel supply companies are reasonable sponsors for a lot of teams there's a reasonable amount of money goes into it and they use formula one as a as a, as a real learning curve for uh, road car uh, fuels. 
So I think there, there has to be somebody, you know, a group of people or whatever set up that will be the fuel specialists that will dig deep and know and work with those fuel companies to achieve it. I don't think you should leave it up to each individual team like you know, Shell and Ferrari and say, okay, we're going to have synthetic fuel, go off and do what you want to do. It needs to be really specified. You know, we, we, I come from the era where we had the, the chemical fuels, you know, and with a, with a decent chemical fuel against the best, you know, fuel, fuel, four-star fuel, which is what, in theory, Formula One cars use currently, um, you had 40, 50 horsepower, easily 40, 50 horsepower. But if you stood in the back of the garage, you couldn't see, you know, it just blinded you. Your eyes just watered, you couldn't breathe, you know, it just sucked up every bit of oxygen that was in the, in, in the garage. Um, and that was the big push then for was for more more power, more power, more power. And then obviously we went away from the chemical fuels. But you know, in reality, the chemical fuels, if they're if they're produced by the right chemicals, they they become a synthetic fuel. You're not digging it out of the ground. So it's a it's a big circle of events that needs to be done correctly, or else it can end up in a, in a real mess. Yeah, and you've hit on some of the topics we'll be hearing about in our interview in a moment. <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to say we can now hear from F1's Chief Technical Officer, Pat Simmons, who is one of the key architects of the move to sustainable synthetic fuels in F1. Pat's involvement in F1 stretches all the way back to 1981, when the Tolman team graduated to Grand Prix racing from Formula 2. Tolman, of course, became Benetton, and Simmons went on to be a world championship winning race engineer with Michael Schumacher and was later technical director for the team. In more recent times, he's worked with Virgin Marussia, Williams, and joined F1 itself in 2017. Pat always has tremendous command of any topic he tackles which I think came across very clearly when I talked with him about F1's future fuels so let's hear from Pat Simmons. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by F1 Chief Technical Officer Pat Simmons. Pat, you've been an engineer in motorsport for a very, very long time. We're going to talk about sustainable synthetic fuels in a in a moment but in general with the Net Zero 2030 project how interesting and engaging is that as a technologist and I ask that partly because people tend to think the green tech if we put that as a broad phrase is almost a boring necessity but how much does it engage you as what I might riskily call you an old school motorsport man <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating um you know I I, I think that uh, one of the great things about engineering is it, it's continually changing and you're continually learning uh, and you're stretching your knowledge all the time. I mean, I, I, I sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek always list one of my hobbies as knowledge acquisition. And, and this is just another example of it. Now, in motorsport, not just Formula One, but all motorsport, everything is about efficiency. It's how efficient you can run your car, how efficient your engine is, how efficient your team is, even how efficient you are with your budget and things like that. So everything is about efficiency. So, you know, this move to, to net zero carbon, which I think is a, an absolutely vital thing for all of us, for the, for the entire planet, and I am an absolute avid believer and disciple for it. Um, at the same time, it's, it's really, really interesting getting into all aspects of it, whether, whether you're talking about low carbon fuels, whether you're talking about sustainable fuels, whether you're talking about... Um, all the other things we have to do, you know, to have a, a carbon neutral event, uh, electric motors, battery technologies, they're, they're all fascinating engineering problems. 
And we're going to talk specifically about the sustainable synthetic fuels. Now, people are bombarded with all sorts of terms about various types of fuels and engines that will save the world. But can you just give a definition of sustainable synthetic fuel? Yeah, that's a great place to to start the conversation, because I, I think one of the problems we have is that there are so many terms um, they're used rather loosely. They're, they're used sometimes incorrectly. Some of them mean exactly the same thing. Uh, and it is a confusing subject. In fact, interestingly, when I, when I sort of first started on this journey, uh, probably early 2018, when I first started looking into the, the synthetics to see whether, I guess I was doing a bit of a feasibility study, really, to see whether it was something we could adopt in, in F1. I found it quite a difficult subject to research because, well, firstly, there is a lot of hype out there. There, there, there are a lot of, um, politely, I'd call them ambitious claims. Um, and there is this terminology that does change. So what do we really mean by a, a sustainable fuel? In my world, that, that means a, a fuel where the carbon that is used in that fuel, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, has not come from a source that is millions of years old. It is not fossil based. It has come recently out of the atmosphere. Now, I guess it's worth explaining exactly what fuels are. You know, we we call them hydrocarbons. They're a liquid hydrocarbon, the the fuels that we we all know. So, what does that mean? A hydrocarbon is basically it's a, a substance that's made out of carbon and, and hydrogen. So depending on exactly how you attach your carbon-hydrogen molecules together, you get different things. Um, you can get methane, CH4, where you have one carbon molecule, you have four hydrogen molecules. Uh, you can move up to attaching a few more carbon atoms and you get them what are called the alcohol fuels, things like ethanol, methanol, those sort of things. But as you start to attach more and more carbon into these long molecular chains, um, you get different properties until you move up into the things that we would recognize as petrol, gasoline, whatever you like to call it. The sort of iso-octanes where you're getting a number of, of carbon atoms. But still essentially you're talking about attaching hydrogen atoms to carbon atoms. Um, that, that's a slight oversimplification, which I, I, I hope the chemists will forgive me for, but it, it does explain it in the, the best possible way, I think. So we need to get some carbon atoms, we need to get some hydrogen atoms. Now, I think most people know that green hydrogen is readily available, reasonably available, by electrolysis of water. You you put an electric current into water, uh, you split out the hydrogen atoms from the oxygen atoms, you keep the oxygen atoms separate to the hydrogen atoms, you've now got your your green hydrogen. And that's assuming, of course, that the electricity that you use has come from a green source, you know, wind power, solar power, whatever it might be. With the the carbon, slightly more difficult. Um, How are you going to get your carbon atoms? Well, of course, Carbon, uh, you know, most compounds are organic. You know, most things in life have have carbon atoms in them. Um, So there are lots and lots of of different ways we can do it. Now, a fossil fuel, you know, an an oil that's deep underground uh, has lots of carbon in it because that's what the dinosaurs or the trees or whatever it was that 
uh, has been compressed down there. You know, it had carbon in it. Uh, equally, the air has got carbon in it. And uh, of course, we talk about CO2 um, being in the air. We could pull the, the carbon straight out of that. Now, it's an interesting sort of thing that we sort of say, well, you know, 400 parts per million of, of CO2 in the atmosphere is far too much. Uh, if you express that in a, in a different way, it's 0.04%, which then makes you realise actually it's quite difficult to get that carbon out. However, even if it's difficult, I think it's a very, very good technique. So this direct air capture where you, you take the air in, you extract the, the CO2 out of it and pull the carbon out of that CO2 is a great technique because you, you really can start to, to pull uh, carbon out very directly. But it's still a, a technique that's in its infancy. Um, I, I think in years to come, decades to come, you know, it will, it will be a common process, but it, at the moment, quite a difficult one. But of course, nature has many, many years head start on us. And it, it, nature has been pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere for ages. And you probably remember from your biology classes at school that plants basically take in CO2 and they give out oxygen, they grab the carbon to grow with. So all that carbon is now embodied or sequestered into, into the plant. And it's that carbon that you can use a lot. Now, first generation fuels, people actually grew plants to, to pull the carbon out. That's not a great thing because now you're competing with the sort of food stock for the world and we don't want to do that. So we're very, very clear that sustainable fuels mean by sustainable, we mean that the carbon must come from something that's not competing with, with food production or, or anything like that. So if we're taking carbon from plants, it, it needs to be either plants that could be grown, you know, in a very marginal land, which wouldn't be suitable for crops. Or we use things like algae, which are a, a very interesting sort of, again, slightly less developed method of, of getting a lot of carbon out of the, the air, or we use waste. Uh, and waste is a very, very um, sensible way of doing things. So rather than um, burning waste, rather than burying waste in landfill and things like that, if we can bring the, the, the carbon out of that, that's also a great way of, of producing the carbon we need for synthetic fuels. And obviously when it comes to this, you say there's ways we can do it. I know F1's working with Aramco on this, but I presume the intention is to have multiple fuel suppliers as teams will want those sorts of arrangements to continue. So how tightly will you regulate this? By which I mean, will you be just creating a broad infrastructure for the regs that says it has to be sustainable and, and, and carbon neutral? Or are you going to specify the means by which it's done? No, uh, we're certainly not going to specify the means. And I guess the answer is a little bit of both. Now, I think one of the problems when, when we talk about uh, mobility and the regulations around mobility is that I feel that something that could have been done better is if the legislators had legislated for the outcome rather than the process. Now, at the moment, they, they're very much legislated for process. They've said, we want electric vehicles. Now, don't get me wrong, electric vehicles are a really, really good solution in many, maybe even the majority of cases, but they're not the only solution. If they had said what we actually want is to reduce CO2, then I think we would have had a much more 
open competition as to how to do it, which would uh, obviously have included synthetic fuels and things like that. So we don't want to make that mistake. Uh, what we want to do is we want to try and say, right, it must be fully sustainable. From a competitive point of view, there are certain other things we need to do in the regulations, like putting a maximum octane content on it and, and things like that. But what we don't want to do is to say how it should be done, because to me, that's the competition. That's the, uh, that's the give back from motorsport is to develop these sort of techniques and to see what industry can do given a free hand. So our regulations uh, will definitely say that everything must be sustainable. We will regulate a, a few things like the density within bands, like the, the maximum octane content. And one of the things we're doing that's a little bit different, a little bit interesting, I think, is that uh, as many people may know, at the moment, we regulate the power of the engines effectively by regulating the mass flow of fuel into them. So current Formula One engine has a, a mass flow limit of 100 kilograms an hour of fuel flowing into it. You can't flow anymore. You flow that fuel into the engine, then you add as much air as you need to, to burn it. Now, of course, if we kept that and we had perhaps some slightly different types of fuel, because the fuel at the moment is, is all very similar, whoever makes it. If we had some slightly different types of fuel, we may find that someone actually got uh, quite a good power advantage from one rather than the other. So what we're doing in, in 2026 is we're, we're rather than regulating the mass flow, we're regulating the energy flow. So in much the same way, when you, you get your gas bill at the end of the month or your electricity bill, you're effectively paying for for kilowatt hours that you've used. Well, similarly, we'll be saying this is how many kilowatt hours or megajoules is the, the more the sort of engineering term that you, that you can flow in a, in a given time. Uh, and that way we, we should get a very open competition as to how you produce the fuel, um, but we won't get the uh, possibility that someone may totally dominate the sport because they have got a better fuel. We want to promote competition, but we also have to respect the fact that, you know, we, we want to go racing and we like close racing. And another thing on, on the rules, you mentioned it when you were talking about making green hydrogen with um, uh, electrolysis in terms of there's the energy in question. I presume the energy into the process is going to be factored into the rules in that you can say it's net zero, but if you're burning all sorts of things to, to create the energy to create the process, that's not quite working. Will that be regulated in a way or is that just down to the individual companies to do yeah i mean one of the things we're, we're very keen on is looking at life cycle analysis and uh, life cycle analysis again gives you a very different view on things um i was saying earlier about you know the, the, one of the problems with legislating that you should have electric vehicles rather than saying you should have minimizing co2 output is that if you look at the life cycle analysis for an electric vehicle and the embedded carbon in building batteries and things like that, you get quite a different view. Um, to quantify it, it's quite difficult. A lot of academics have looked at this. They come up with different answers, uh, different circumstances. Of course, it depends you know, where your electricity is coming from. Um, you know, Norway, very, very green. Eastern Europe, uh, far from it, you know, a lot of... 
coal is still used to produce electricity. So you can get different answers depending on, on how you approach the problem. Um, but the fact is that, you know, you, if you look at life cycle analysis in general, the the difference over the life of a vehicle uh, is maybe less than you might think of the, the carbon, the total carbon emitted in manufacturing use uh, and then recycling is a, is a lot less for the difference between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine vehicle than, than one might think. So we're, we're very keen on looking at that life cycle analysis. Um, now, it will depend, you know, on exactly how you, you get your electricity and that's out of the control of the, the oil companies and things, you know, if you're... Uh, if you were making the synthetic fuel in the UK, for example, yeah, you can probably these days get around 50% of your, your power from renewables, but not 100%. Uh, as I said earlier, if you're doing it in Norway, you can get more. Uh, Porsche, as a lot of people know, have built a plant down in, in Chile, um, which is entirely powered by wind and solar, so it's 100% there. So it does depend. Um, and... This is governed um, by something called the Renewable Energy Directive, which is on its second issue at the moment. It's commonly known as Red 2, uh, which is what people will refer it to. That at the moment calls for any fuels that are being made to have a 65% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and that's the sort of standard that industry is working to. Uh, I think in Formula One, we can get a lot better than that. Uh, we're using that as a guideline. We're using a lot of methodologies from Red2. But uh, I do believe we will get much closer to it. But you're quite right. You need energy. Um, and, you know, the, the energy into a process is, unfortunately, always a little bit more than the energy you get out of a process. Otherwise, we'd have continuous motion and then we wouldn't be worrying about anything. I'm disappointed you don't think the F1 regulations control thermodynamics. It's very, <laughs> very, very disappointing lack of emission there. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. One thing that you've slightly touched on it, but people will say, well, why not go electric? Because that's the prevailing wind with some countries stipulating deadlines for selling all cars. You've got um, a real push push for this. So well, why is that not the solution? It comes down to what we term power density. Um, now, a kilogram of fuel has a, a density of 43 megajoules of energy. In it. That's an awful lot of energy in a small space, uh, which is why we get so much power from internal combustion engines or why, you know, if you set fire to a litre of fuel, there's an awfully big flame coming out of it. Uh, that's a very high energy density. Batteries are way, way, way lower than that. Now, they are improving, but they, they're orders of magnitude less than that. And that means that if you wanted to have a vehicle with a lot of power in a small space, whether it be a racing car or a truck or, or an aircraft, 
it becomes quite difficult to to have a battery um, that doesn't weigh you know an enormous amount. So electric vehicles, as I say, I think are absolutely the right thing in many many environments, but they they do suffer from the fact that you know they do have a big heavy battery. Uh, that battery, as I've said before, it, it's got a lot of carbon embed, embedded in it, in, in manufacturing it. It's, the electrical systems have other things you know, like cobalt and what have you. That, you know, it's not as green as you might think. And of course, with some of the big batteries in, in vehicles at the moment, you're, you're carrying an awful lot of weight of battery that maybe you're not using. You know, people talk about range anxiety. They want long range. They want to be able to drive 300 miles without having to recharge. Uh, but of course, most of the time, they're driving something more like 30 miles. So they're carrying around a much bigger battery than maybe is necessary. Uh, we think that a hybrid vehicle is a very good um, alternative. Uh, not, not to replace electric. I think in an urban environment, low mileage, etc. I think an electric vehicle is actually the, the best solution. But if you need to go a little bit further, if you need to carry a slightly bigger load, or in our case, if you want higher performance, or in an aircraft's case where you need higher performance, then liquid, synthetic liquid hydrocarbons are actually a pretty good solution to the problem. Hybrids, absolutely a good solution to the problem because it's the best of both worlds. And when we go to our next generation of car, we, we recognize that because not only are we putting synthetic fuel into that car, but we're putting a lot more hybridization. And you know, we will have around 350 kilowatts of electrical power on that car and maybe 400 kilowatts of, of internal combustion engine power on that car. So in total, similar, maybe slightly more power than we've got at the moment but a much higher proportion coming from electrical energy. Obviously, while we're on the topic of why aren't you doing this instead, one thing I was asked about the other day was, why is it taking F1 until 2026 to do it? When, for example, focusing on the word sustainable only, IndyCar has got a, a Shell ethanol, renewable ethanol-based fuel coming in, in next year. So why is there this lead time required? I think it's the, the answer to that is because we're going to do it properly. Um, I said at the beginning of our conversation that there's a lot of hype out there, uh, and that's a polite way of putting it. Um, there are certainly a lot of so-called renewable fuels that are not perhaps as renewable or as, as low carbon as one might think. We don't, in, in overall terms, we don't use an awful lot of fuel in, in Formula One. And in fact, we're bringing in restrictions to the amount of testing that's done and things like that that will reduce our fuel usage, as indeed our new engine will, will use less fuel. But even so, we're talking about somewhere between half a million, three quarters of a million litres of, of fuel a year. Now, there simply aren't enough sustainable molecules around at the moment to do that in the way that I want to do it, You know, to do it absolutely honestly and genuinely so I can hold my hand on my heart, I can say, look, this is a sustainable fuel. We need some lead time. We need the plants being built. They are being built, uh, and our partners at Aramco are building two at the moment that, that come on stream towards the end of 23, 
start producing stuff in, in 24. We need to experiment with that. We need some time to, to build up to it. But when we do it, it will be a very, very honest, genuine and leading edge um, fuel. And also in terms of the, the broad cleanness of the fuel, obviously people will look at it and think, well, it's still a hydrocarbon-based fuel. But obviously, because these are synthetic molecules, you can spec it. It also knocks out a lot of the other just general nastiness you have in, let's call it orthodox <laughs> fuel. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Um, you know, once you start synthesizing the fuel, you can, of course, make it how you want. Uh, and interestingly, uh, when I started this project, I had in mind that we would do a, a sort of co-optimization of the fuel and the engine together. Because, of course, the engines have been developed to work on fossil fuels. You know, for example, it's, it's quite difficult to make a, a gasoline that's over about 204 octane, things like that. When you start synthesizing fuels, you get much higher octane ratings, um, you have high energy contents, you can do all sorts of things. Um, but I think that what we, what we decided in the end we needed to do was to have a fuel that we would call a drop-in fuel. And what we mean by that is, is a fuel that you could take it out of your Formula One car and you could put it in your own car and you could drive home with it. But you are synthesizing it, so you don't have some of the nasties that are in, in a fossil fuel. I think everyone knows that, of course, the, the fuels that are on sale now are much, much lower in sulfur than they used to be some years ago, but they still have sulfur in them. Sulfur is not a nice thing to burn. It's not a nice thing to be pushing out of the tailpipe. There's absolutely no reason why there would be any sulfur whatsoever in a, a synthetic fuel. So in those sort of things, yes, you, you can clean them up. And I, I also think that as we learn more and more about this, you know, we'll, be, we'll be able to get better combustion from it, so we'll reduce particulates. We, we will have a cleaner burning fuel, without a doubt. And how about the question of, of performance? Because when it comes to any kind of sustainable fuel, people kind of automatically assume there's a loss in performance. Now, because this is a hydrocarbon-based fuel, should it be similar in terms of characteristics that have any impact on torque? performance how should i presume the energy density should be should be good because it's synthetic so if you design it right it should perhaps be even better yeah it, it, it certainly could be uh we are putting a limit on energy density because we want uh we want a fuel that is relevant to the road you know we don't want yeah we could go and make a, a rocket fuel that's not what we want to do we want to we want to try and advance the the industry so that you know it is a genuine solution to, to future mobility. So the energy density will be similar. Now, you're quite right. Uh, a lot of synthetic fuels are lower in, in energy density and therefore in power unless you flow an awful lot more through. Ethanol is an example. You know, the alcohol fuels mentioned earlier, ethanol, methanol, things like that. They, they, you do need to burn more of them to, to get the same power. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a place in, in these sort of fuels because the advantage of the, those sort of fuels is they're actually quite cheap. It's, it's relatively easy to make ethanol, for example. And um, in our future fuel, we will have a, a reasonable amount of ethanol and they're probably ending up to 20%. Um, but the, the performance of the, the total fuel will be quite similar to the, the fuel that we have now. And in terms of just the, the technology, 
you mentioned the various mythologies, carbon capture, for example. This is all relatively new technology, and it's another one you read a lot about, and there's lots of hype and talk about it. How much work needs to be done just on getting all these things in place for the for the fuel manufacturers? Yeah, relatively new compared to, you know, when the dinosaurs started making the, the fossil fuel, maybe. But actually, a lot of these techniques have been around for a while. Um, one, of, one of the processes that, uh, that converts the sort of low carbon fuels and upgrades them is a process called Fisher Trough. That was really that... Uh, that, that started around the Second World War when um, Germany didn't have the, the natural resources of, of oil, but had a lot of coal. And it was able to develop the, the process which sort of converted this into a, a gasoline. Um, it was developed further in, in South Africa, you know, in, in later years, where again, a lot of coal reserves, and they were using it to, to upgrade into to gasoline. So some of those processes are are pretty well known. Some of the carbon capture, I think there's there's some novelty there. Uh, certainly the direct air capture, you know, pulling the carbon out of the air di- directly is certainly relatively new and, and still being developed. I mentioned algae earlier, you know, I think that's one that has a, a, a huge potential, but very, very much in the infancy at the moment. I think I've seen a comment from you from the past saying that the engine manufacturers took a bit of persuading to uh, to, to go for this. A lot of what you said about synthetic fuels makes a huge amount of, of sense. So why was it a little bit difficult to, to get that over the line? I, you know, I, I think the, the F1 engine manufacturers probably, you know, they're, they're very focused on the sport. Um, when we started talking about the future, the next generation uh, we spoke to the OEMs, we sort of went to, yes, it's the same companies, but at a, at a much higher level. And of course, at those sort of levels, sustainability is, is everything, as it is to us as a sport. You know, we we have a little strap line that we, we want everyone to be proud of being a Formula One fan. We don't want anyone to be ashamed of being a Formula One fan. And I think, you know, climate change is perhaps the biggest thing facing us in, in the next decades. Uh, is something where we can make a very positive contribution. However, if conversely, if we ignored it, I think we would be negligent. So that message, it, it spreads all the time. The OEMs absolutely know it. Um, I think everyone's on board with it these days. And as a final question, perhaps to win over the people who aren't that bothered about all of these side of things, they probably should be, but for whom fuel is just something you put in to make things go, it, it's going to be pretty invisible, I imagine, in terms of what you see on track, because it's going to perform like a conventional fuel, isn't it? That's what I'd certainly hope for. You know, that, that's the, the whole, we use this little phrase, drop in fuel. Um, we really mean that. You can drop it into your car and you won't notice the difference. And uh, yeah, that's what we, we're trying to, to promote. And, uh, you know, I, I think what we've got to, come to terms with is that the the enemy of climate change is CO2. It's not necessarily the internal combustion engine. I think that's a good message to finish on. So thanks very much, Pat Simmons, and we'll look forward to 2026 and this exciting new generation of fuels. Thank you.
If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can record a voice note on your phone to do this and send it to podcasts at therace.com. So that's podcasts at therace.com. And remember to tell us who you are. Now, we've got our first proper voice note recorded question for this episode, and it's from Freddie De Beer from South Africa, as he tells us in his message. Yes, how's it, guys? My name is Freddie De Beer here from South Africa. I'm a mechanical engineer working in the aerospace industry, so it's quite interesting listening to all the technical things that you could discuss on the podcast. So very interesting. Thank, thanks very much for, for bringing it to the, to the everyday person. Um, so just have a couple of questions on the, the materials used in Formula 1. So just curious if there's any metal matrix composites used, for instance, like um, the beryllium metal matrix composites, and then um, where are they used, you know? So just uh, can you maybe um, expand a bit on that? And then also, uh, for instance, like the, the run-of-the-mill parts. Um, so what do you guys use um, for, like, regular everyday parts that are like sort of mundane like in the in the aerospace industry we just use um aluminium like 6082 or whatever you know just if it's a regular part um, um and then got a, a another question which is um on the mechanical properties which is the most important property for you um is it like the stiffness or the strength or the fatigue properties uh presumably that's also like um application specific but yeah if you can maybe just extrapolate a bit on what uh, sort of materials you use where and what um, mechanical properties important for that and then also one last question is when you do the the composites when they need to join to some sort of um, a metallic component for instance you, you have like a carbon I don't know sheet or shaft or whatever and there's a mechanical like a machined aluminium block or something that goes on the end so you can sort of screw something else onto the onto the the carbon piece how do you do that once again thanks for the very good podcast and i'll keep listening thanks very much so gary great set of questions you could say there from freddie de beer so let's start off with the metal matrix composites used yeah, um, yeah. Good questions, Freddie, and thanks very much for for sending them in. Um, in the past, metal metrics composites um, was used quite a lot in areas where you were looking for stiffness, um, but it was sort of it got itself to a point where it was outpressing itself. A typical example of where you would use it would be in the brake calipers, because the brake calipers, you know, you rely you want as light as possible, uh, minimum material so you can get uh, get rid of the heat out of it and the best stiffness possible. So it's a typical example of using you know, high stiffness materials um, in a, just because of the feeling that the driver gets on the brake pedal. He didn't want it deflecting. And now they're using uh, a more normal aluminium. Beryllium basically has been banned. Uh, as in Formula 1, there's, a, there's a, a specification set for the materials that you can use, and it's brought it into the reality of what is, you might call commercially available, high-end commercially available, but it's high-end commercial, it's, it is available. So, um, as I say, beryllium was used and then um, got banned, and now it's about design of the componentry. And it's one of the reasons, to be honest, or one of the, the, the things that's happened through going from 13-inch rims to 18-inch rims and still keeping the discs um, 
at a small smaller diameter than they could be because you can have now a, a caliper that's designed with a bridge over the top of it because obviously the caliper's theoretically got two sides and you have to join it across the top of the uh, the disc. But if you, in the 13-inch wheels, you were having as big a disc as possible um, and then the bridge was quite weak. The bridge that joined those two halves together was quite weak. Um, so that's one of the benefits of the 18-inch rims. You can now have a, a decent bridge across the caliper. The, the problem with any of this sort of stuff is it means that every team's got to go out and throw away everything they had because you can buy, you can get new stuff now that's better than the old stuff. So with a budget cap and change, the two don't go hand in hand. So you've got to be very careful that you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And then we can move on to the more run-of-the-mill parts, materials that you'll find in an F1 car. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of materials. depends upon the application. Um, many, many parts will be made out of uh, machined aluminium, for example, you know, brake pedal mountings, um, bolt-on suspension mountings. And they will be, I suppose, as practical and, and exotic material. You, you mentioned there, um, 6082. That, that would be a fairly normal uh, machining a component, a material to machine components out of. You know, you could go higher end, seventy seventy five, or you could drop down a bit to sort of sixty twenty six. But it's it's that it's that range. You're wanting, you know, the thing that comes along with with decent materials is the fact that they machine well as well. So you know, you, you use it for two or three different reasons: good machinability, um, good inherent strength and stiffness. Um, and you know it's, it's ideal. You can you can make these things quite quickly. The aluminium five-axis machines. So yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of different materials. But it depends really on the application. So as I say, that you would you would use a lot of aluminium in simple bracketry. Um, whenever you wanted to go to a bit more exotic stuff, you might um, like for let's say uh, pick up points in that in the gearbox if it's if it's a carbon gearbox assembly. Or the housing around the gearbox because of the temperature difference between your know, carbon basically the expansion rate is very very low if you use aluminium inserts there with the temperature of the gearbox changing from 20 degrees c to 120 degrees c it's very easy to shear the glue line because of the difference in expansion so normal titanium would be normally something that you would use in in areas where there's there's high heat change or you want that extra bit of stiffness so application and then choose the right material from there the next bit was about mechanical properties yeah i mean again it's, it depends upon the, the the requirement mechanical properties you always want things to be stiff um, because if they're stiff you can normally if the material's stiff you can normally make it lighter um, but it is very application specific um, fatigue properties you mentioned in your in your question if you look at the front wing, for example, you know, it's there's a lot of movement, a lot of bouncing around, and obviously the bracketry that holds the front wing to the nose, that sort of area would be machined, and it would probably be machined out of titanium because, again, weight for stiffness ratio, you can get a fairly decent return from it, but also fatigue-wise, it's, it's, it's pretty good. So you want a little bit of a little bit of movement, but you don't want the thing to crack over time. So it, it just takes a bit of time to get that all to get that all sorted out. But it is just really, as you say, application-specific, which on every part of the racing car, you obviously try and optimise it to minimum weight. And again, the budget cap's coming into play. You know, you've got to think about these things because there's a huge amount of parts on a, on a Formula 1 car. And if you can save, you know, whatever it is, you know, a dollar on each bet, it, it all mounts up at some point in time. And the final part was about 
joining composites to metallic components how's that achieved yeah as a, you know it's the same same old deal it depends on what it's for if it's in a, an environment where there's a big temperature cycle then you definitely go titanium um just from the fact that you don't get the the, the, the expansion rate difference between the two components uh, i don't I'm not sure that there's as much science in it as what there would be in the aircraft industry, I suppose. Um, and again, it's a bit a bit more down to what you can achieve within what you're trying to do. Um, so if you take the end of a wing, for example, it'll have an aluminium, an aluminium sort of bulkhead put into it, and it'll be bonded in. And normally what you'd have is, is something that's... Um, the, the joint line would be like a taper. So it wouldn't be just a parallel joint line where the glue is everything. It would be like a taper getting bigger as you go inboard as such. So you, you, you know, to pull that insert out of that carbon shell would be very, very difficult. So you, you, you're always trying to mechanically lock things in place, but not put mechanical fixings in it, but you're trying to mechanically lock it in place within the design of it and then allow the, allow the bond to actually make sure that keeps the thing in the right position. So as you would tighten up the you know the, the bolts that hold let's say the end plate to the to the rear wing for example or part one part to another you will sort of lock that in certain position just a little bit better well thanks very much for that question freddie remember if you'd like to be like freddie and have your burning technical question answered on the race f1 tech show just send a voice note to your question to podcast at the race.com and it can be on absolutely anything past present or future and the question can be as simple or as advanced as you like. This is all about trying to take the tech of Formula One to people, whatever your level of technical knowledge is. Gary is always very, very happy to answer. Well, Gary, as always, thanks very much. We're looking ahead to the Austrian Grand Prix. That's always an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's different. You know, it's um, it's one of those races where, I mean, I, I went to Austria whenever it was, a might call a real circuit, where it was flat out around the outside and, you know, big, fast, sweeping corners. Um, now it's a bit more Mickey Mouse. Um, but it is it is one of these circuits where it's, you know, there's, there's uh, some good corners joined by good straight lines as well. So it's a bit more stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. But it's always a good a good result, a good uh, race. And, you know, Red Bull, obviously, it's their home track. So that's the big push for them and... and then again, on the other hand, the big push will be for Ferrari or, or Mercedes now to perhaps just uh, surprise them a little bit and, uh, and, and perform better than them. So I think it's, it's reached that point in the season now where we're not quite sure. You know, there's not that many teams up there at the front, but I think there's enough. We, we don't know where Mercedes just stand quite yet. They, they, they showed at Silverstone that, to be honest, they're pretty competitive. Um and you know, there's a good, as good a chance of, of Hamilton winning the race in, in, in Silverstone as there was anybody, to be honest, at some points in time. But at the end of the day, it didn't work out that way. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be there having a, a bit of a battle and a bit of a fight uh, in Austria. Yeah, it should be one to look forward to. And as always, I'm sure it'll throw up some big tech topics for us to talk about next week, when I think we'll also hear from a certain John Barnard. So thanks very much for listening. And thanks as always, Gary. We'll be back next week with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.